0: In the mid-1920s, a young man named Theodore enrolled in Oxford University in the PhD program for English literature. While enrolled, he quickly fell out of love with academics and into love with a young woman named Helen. Soon they were married. And in the course of time, his wife Helen convinced Theodore that he ought to give up His dream to be an English professor, what had been his dream, and ought to instead embrace what he seemed to be prodigiously talented to do, and that was to be an illustrator. And so Theodore did, and began to submit work uh, to various magazines and publications his drawings and his writings. And perhaps out of embarrassment, he chose not to use his name, his full name, he chose instead to use his middle name. And then tongue in cheek, he added the title doctor to the front of his middle name as an acknowledgement that he never did graduate with his doctorate from Oxford University, but that he had gone on to other things. Well, in 1991, Dr. Seuss died. And at his death at that time, over 200 million copies of his illustrations and books had been read by people around the world. And instead of teaching a small number of students in a higher academic setting every semester, he had the privilege of teaching hundreds of millions of children and parents through his illustrations and his writings. Now I have a question for you. His wife, Helen, when she urged him to let go of what had been a lifelong dream to be a professor and instead embrace this thing that he seemed to be so gifted to do and that brought him so much pleasure, what do you think her motivation was? Love, do you really think she wanted to hurt her husband? Was it not that she recognized that for whatever reason, this idea of him pursuing academics, which at that point was making him miserable, was no longer the thing that he really was designed to do and she wanted him to be happy and to feel fulfilled. And so she convinced him, why don't you try this? Let go of that. And that made all the difference. This morning we're going to look at a story of some young men who were also asked to let go of things they thought might be a blessing to them, to embrace something that was a far greater blessing. We're going to see that some of them did indeed make the same sort of choice. One did not, but this morning in their story, we want to hear God making the same request of us, and that each one of us today, faced with a similar choice as Theodore Seuss Geisel, and with the young men in this story, are we willing to let go of certain things to receive back something far, far greater? If you will, would you take a Bible and turn to the book of Mark chapter 10, Mark chapter 10. There should be a Bible in front of you, in the rack in front of you. It looks like this. That's one of the church Bibles. We would love for you to use that if you don't have a Bible with you. Mark chapter 10. In these Bibles, it's page 822. Mark chapter 10. We're going to look at a story that begins in verse 17. And I'm going to start by reading the setup to the story, which is verses 17 to 20. Mark chapter 10, page 822. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? "'Why do you call me good?' Jesus answered. "'No one is good except God alone. "'You know the commandments. "'You shall not murder. "'You shall not commit adultery. "'You shall not steal. "'You shall not give false testimony. "'You shall not defraud. "'Honor your father and mother.' "'Teacher,' he declared. "'All these I have kept since I was a boy.'" So in the setup to the story, we have a young man who we're later going to find out is actually quite wealthy, And he comes up to Jesus and he wants to know the answer to the question, how does somebody get eternal life? How does somebody get the gift of living forever, of being able to go through death and be resurrected to life? How does someone experience the promise of heaven, the goodness of God forever and ever and ever? It's a great question. If you've never asked that question, it is the question to ask. All other questions pale in comparison to this one. Because death is the one great enemy that casts a shadow over everything in our lives. And at some point, every single person needs to ask the question, is there a way through it? Is there a way past death? Is there a way to overcome this thing and to experience life? forever in heaven with God on the new earth with God that's the question now this young man comes and he falls on his knees in front of Jesus and he addresses Jesus as good teacher now I grew up in East Grand Rapids and I grew up with a lot of uh, friends who were unfailingly polite and civil and had impeccable manners that's what I picture this young man life perhaps you know the type He's come and he seems to have grown up in higher echelons of society. He seems to be well-trained in a proper and respectful way uh, to approach and address those who are his elders. And so he comes and he does everything in a very honoring, respectable way. And he falls on his knees and he says to Jesus, good teacher. Now Jesus' response to this young man is really fascinating to me. Jesus gets called good all the time. He never says anything about it. But here, he actually presses back on this young man who's kneeling before him. And what he's doing is he sees this very proper, very well put together, very polite, very civil, very respecting young man, and he essentially wants to probe to see Do you actually believe the words that you're saying? You know that sort of facade we can all put on where we put on our best manners. And Jesus takes this opportunity to kind of probe and say, okay, you've said all the right things, but do you really believe what you're saying? And what he says back to him is, why'd you call me good? What? (laughs) There's no one good except God alone. Now, what's Jesus doing with this? Well, first, he's looking at this young man who has come in a very respectful, civil, polite position, and he says to him, if I'm good, what does that say about who I really am? I'm not just a teacher. You're kneeling before God himself. You want eternal life, You're coming not for a theory or an idea, but you're actually bowing before the one who is the creator of life, who can give you the gift of life right now. He also is telling him, if there's no one good except God alone and you've addressed me as good, what does that mean about you? It would mean that you are not good. And Jesus very subtly has taken this polite, civil language and turned it into an opening for this young man to see what's really going on here. He is kneeling before the God of the universe and the truth of the matter is, no matter how good he is, he's never going to compare to the goodness of God. And so Jesus sets him up beautifully in the kindest possible way. He says, okay, let's think about the Ten Commandments, and he gives them six of the ten. The six that are at the second half of the ten that are focused on how we treat one another. Why would Jesus pick those? Those are the easiest ones to see when you mess up. They're the easiest to see that I wasn't very honoring to my father and mother today, or I stole something, or I lied, or whatever. Jesus has done everything possible to give this young man the opportunity to realize there is a reality behind his polite, kind, well-mannered lifestyle. And so he says to him, what about the commands? Now at this point, after Jesus has just gently reminded him, there is no one good except God, you would have expected his answer to be, you know, I've tried. I've tried my best. But yes, sometimes I've messed up. What does he say? Nope, got it. I've done him. he He was probably raised in a good Jewish home. The high echelons of society. A wealthy young man. He's been trained, he's gone to the best schools, had the best rabbis, the best training, and he's been taught, obey these things. And from his point of view, I've done them all. Even though no one's good except God himself, but I've done well. Well, that was Jesus' subtle attempt. He's now going to move from subtle to blatant. But before he does... I want you to notice the most important phrase in this entire story. Verse 21, Jesus looked at him and what? Loved him. You and I might see a young man who is well-cultured and wealthy. We may actually see someone who's arrogant or has too high a view of himself. That's not what Jesus sees. Jesus sees... A boy who's lost. Jesus sees someone who without his help is going to experience separation and death. Jesus looks at this young man and far from being angry with him, far from being disgusted with him, far from being vengeful towards him, he sees him and he loves him. His heart is full of love. And what's about to happen Everything that's going to take place in this story is taking place because Jesus desperately loves this young man. And because he loves him, he doesn't pat him on the head and say, okay, well, keep it up. He looks at him and says, subtle didn't work. Let's go for blatant. And so he says to him, one thing you lack go and sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples and hear the pain in his voice, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. with God. So Jesus has tried very subtly to help this young man realize that despite his goodness, despite his civility, despite his proper upbringing, despite his obedience, despite his money, he cannot get eternal life. And Jesus has tried subtly to tell him, if you just ask for it, you can have it. He missed the subtle and so Jesus goes with the blatant and he says, okay, go sell everything. Now, wait a second. When we hear this, is it true? Do you and I have to sell all our possessions and give everything in the, to the poor in order to have eternal life? Is that true? No. Why is he saying it here? See, Jesus started with the last six commands of the Ten Commandments, and the young man missed the point. So Jesus backs him up to the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And he's trying to help this sweet young man come to realize he's never going to get eternal life until he's ready to embrace God. And in his case, he can't embrace God until he lets go of money. Now the heartbreaking thing is, he can't do it. He goes away sad because he's got so much money. Now for those of us, for whom money's not that big a deal, we look and we think, oh, poor soul. How foolish. Do you understand what you are being offered? It's essentially like Jesus is saying to him, Give me thousands and I will give you back billions. What would he be giving up? Money? Money for what? 70, 80 years? What is everybody trying to do with their money anyway? Just live longer, right? Who wouldn't trade whatever it costs? If you said eternal life cost a thousand dollars or a hundred thousand dollars or a million dollars, at some point people are gonna pull out their checkbook and say, Well, it's either death or that. And what else is he going to do with his money? He's going to try to design a life that's a bad shadow of what heaven looks like. He's going to try to design a life that's full of adventure and fun and peace, and joy, and relationships, and great food, and fantastic activities. He's gonna try with that money to to design a life that God already has, something far, far greater, waiting for him for all of eternity. And we look at the young man and we say, this is a terrible choice. Give up the money, and look what you get back in return treasure in heaven that will last forever and eternal life and so if your thing's not money you look at him and you think man what was he thinking but the question for us today is especially for those who are not yet christians if you were kneeling before jesus what would he ask for from you Because every single one of us is holding on to something instead of God. And maybe we should hear Jesus' words, not just how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Maybe the thing that you hold on to is intelligence. And we need to hear Jesus say to you how hard it is for the intelligent to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because the truth of the matter is if you're going to embrace Jesus, you're going to have to let go of certain desires for intellectual neatness, for everything fitting together, for having answers to all your questions, to being able to scientifically prove the existence of Jesus. And at some point, if you're going to hold tenaciously on to that sort of intellectual credibility, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. And others may look and say, why wouldn't you let go of the intelligence of earth to receive the wisdom of heaven? And we think, how foolish. How foolish. Or maybe your thing is respect. And you need to hear Jesus saying how hard it is for the well-respected to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because the truth of the matter is at some point if you're going to embrace Jesus, you're going to have to give up some respect from others. That there are people in this world that will look at that choice and make fun of you for it. There will be some around who lose respect for you Because you've embraced this crutch, this religion, this person. And if you want to hold on to being well-respected, you're never going to embrace Jesus. For some of you here, it may be control. Listen to Jesus say to you how hard it is for those who love to be in control to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because for you... Jesus may be saying, let go, because you cannot grab hold of me unless you let go of you being in charge. And we think, who wouldn't do that if control's not our issue? Right. We think, who wouldn't give up being in control so that the God of the universe who loves you more than you love yourself, who knows more about you than you know about yourself, who can cause all good things, why wouldn't we want to give control to him? Maybe for you, you need to hear Jesus saying how hard it is for those who love the sinful pleasures of this world to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because the truth of the matter is, you got to let go of those sinful things to embrace Jesus. Please don't miss the fact that if your thing is money, that's what Jesus is telling you to do. But if it's not, there's something else. And if you're not yet a Christian, it's because there is something you may not see it because your life may be well put together. You may be dressed nice. You may have all the polite, nice things to say in response. You may have tried really hard to obey. You may think that you're a good person, that you've been raised in a good home, that you've got all these things. But Jesus loves you enough that He's saying to you, "There is something in your life that you are holding on to, and while you hold on to that thing, you cannot have eternal life." But if If you will let go of intelligence, or respect, or control, or sinful pleasure, or whatever that may be, what you get back from God is eternal life. It's like Dr. Seuss. At some point, you can't be an English professor and an illustrator at the same time. You've got to let go of one to embrace the other. And we would look at his life and think, how foolish to keep holding on to something that you don't even like doing because for whatever reason you thought this was your dream. So for those who are here who are not yet believers in Jesus, this story is forcing this question. What is it you are holding on to that is keeping you from eternal life? Now, some of us here who are Christians are going to say, okay, well, what about us? Verse 28, then Peter spoke up. We've left everything to follow you. Like we did it, whatever it was, money, intelligence, respect, control, sin, we let go of that thing, we embraced Jesus, we became Christians. What about us? Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive how many times as much? A hundred times as much when in this present age homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life but many who are first will be last and the last will be first. The same principle is true when addressed to Christians. What Jesus was saying to those who are not yet Christians, if you will let go of what you're holding on to, you will receive back eternal life. To those of us who are Christians, God is saying, the same principle applies. Even after you become a Christian, God continues to ask us to let go of things so he can give us back stuff that is far, far better. I mean, do you hear what Jesus is saying? I mean, the the crazy thing is, the first part of the story is about eternal life. That's about heaven. That's about the future. Jesus then turns to the believers and says, "It's not only true then, it's true now. It's not just that if you give God $1,000 you get billions of dollars back in heaven. It's true that you get that back now in this life." Now, for some of us the red the red flag goes up. Well, wait a second. That sounds like health and wealth and prosperity. I give God 100 bucks and I get back 1,000 bucks. I give him a million dollars and I get back a billion dollars. Notice what it says, "along with persecutions." This is not the easy life. This is not the genie in the sky. This is not, okay, look, some sort of bartering or exchange. All right, God, I'll give you this and you'll give me back something better. But having said that, please don't miss the point. Jesus is telling you, you will get back in this life something far far better than what you give up please don't miss that point point. and it's not just warm fuzzy feelings he goes out of his way to say if you give up homes and parents and kids and fields and money you get back parents and homes and kids and fields it's not just warm fuzzy feelings god is giving you back far more than you give him amen crazy What might this look like for a Christian? Well, think about the building in which we're worshiping. Many of us have been here for a while, and we remember what the children's ministry space used to look like, and the fellowship hall used to look like, and the sanctuary used to look like. At some point, we had to let go of what we were used to, our comforts and our routines, and where we thought everything was, and how all the rooms should look, and we had to give it over to God. Look what God gave us back. That's what he does. For some of you, you have a child who graduated this week or next week or last week. They're headed off to college. And you might think to yourself, I'd love to have them back as an eight-year-old. Cute, sweet, adorable. That's a good age, isn't it? They think you're fantastic. They actually want to hang out with you. They're not embarrassed of you. They think your answers to questions are good answers. And you may think, you know what, I want to hold on to this child. Well, Jesus is saying, if you give that child over to me, what you'll get back is something far, far greater. What you get back is not just a sweet, wonderful eight-year-old who adores you. You can get back a friend, an adult who loves and serves Jesus, who becomes an inspiration for your life, who's willing to serve you in your aging years, to come alongside of you and love you. That's the promise of God. What you give, you get back in far greater ways. For some here this morning, God may be asking you to let go of social drinking. The promise is what will you get back? If you do, because you might be a stumbling block to somebody, what you get back is far greater relationships with people, far greater impact on others, and a far greater time of relating to one another without having to have alcohol present. If that's what he's calling you to do, the promise is what he's going to give back to you is far, far greater than what you give to him. For some of you here, God may be asking you to give up the idea of marriage. Or of having children. What's the promise of Jesus? What you'll receive back in relationships. We're not just talking about warm, fuzzy feelings, we're talking about tangible relationships, impact, feeling loved and being able to love others, experiences of intimacy and closeness with God. What you get back is far far greater than what you give up now listen i know it's hard to believe this is why jesus says help my unbelief this is but that's what do you not see that that's what he says here there is nothing you can give up that god will not give you back far greater what about the decisions that you get to make decisions about where to go to college decisions about where to work who to marry those sorts of things What happens if you give those decisions back to God? What do you receive? Decisions from the Lord that are far, far better. A hundred times better than the decisions you might make for yourself. Maybe you're not supposed to be an English professor even though everybody in your life told you you're supposed to. Maybe you're supposed to write children's books and draw pictures of weird animals with all sorts of stuff happening to them. Maybe that's what God has for you. How would you know when he who knows you and loves you decides for you what you receive are decisions that are hundreds of times better than the decision you might make for yourself? Oh, you mean if God makes all the decisions, everything will go smoothly along with persecutions? No, we're not saying that. What we are saying is what you receive back is far, far better than what you give up. For some of us, we may be asked to give up a loved one who's died. And you're like, nobody asked me. Yeah, every time we lose a loved one, there's always a decision. You can choose to give that person to God, or you can fight to try to hold on to them. The promise of God is if you just try to hold on to that person, you'll spend the rest of your life trying to hold on to them. And if you acknowledge that God took this person, and now you have a choice to submit to that and to give that person over to God, what will you receive back? Relationships, experience with God, peace, knowledge of what God's plan is, the opportunities for all the things that God has in store for you, whatever it may be, Jesus' promises, it will be far, far more then you give up. Now please, it's an act of faith. Hear the word of the Lord. He couldn't be any more blatant. No one, no one, not one person, zero people in the history of the universe, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields, the list goes on and on and on, For me and the gospel, no one, not even one person, not even one situation will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecution. Oh, and by the way, and in the age to come eternal life. So the choice, the question that each one of us here this morning have to ask is this. Number one, if you're not yet a believer in Jesus, what is that thing you're holding on to? And you can come here to church and you can be all dressed up and you can ask the right questions and you can be a functioning, good member of society, very polite, very civil, successful, but until you're willing to let go of the money or the respect or the sin, or whatever it may be, you can't have God, and you can't have eternal life. And I don't know what form it'll look like in your life, but the question is, would you really keep holding on to that stuff instead of embracing a God who loves you? And for those who are Christians, the question is, what is that thing in your life currently? that God is asking for back from you? Is it a job? Is it a relationship? Is it a dream? What is that thing he's asking for from you? Know and understand that if you choose to give it to him, you can fight him. You can fight to hold on to whatever it is. I'm just gonna tell you, you won't win, but you can keep fighting. But if instead you choose to give it to him, he's not asking for it because he wants to hurt you. That's why the most important verse is that he loves you. He's asking for it because he wants to bless you. Why would you want to hold on to this thing when something far, far greater is waiting for you? Sean Mendez has a song called Treat You Better. And it's a story of a young man who sees a young woman who's in a relationship, an abusive relationship, with another young man. And the song is about this young man who is pining and longing to give this young woman something better than what she has. The lyrics of the, of the verse go like this. I know I can treat you better than he can. And any girl like you deserves a gentle man. Tell me why are we wasting time on all your wasted crying? When you should be with me instead. I know I can treat you better. Better than he can. That's the heart of God for you. Whatever it is you're holding on to. Money. Intelligence. A boyfriend. Sinful lifestyle choices. Whatever it may be. I know that God will treat you better. All you got to do is let go and embrace a God who loves you.